Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. There's a lot of back and forth and give and take when you start a show with your dad. Today's guest, Chaz Volk, started a podcast with his dad and also his dad mentored him as a business coach. Chaz, welcome. Hey. All right. Mr. Thrive Media in the house. How's it going, Rena? Good. How are you? Good, good. I'm incredibly flattered that you had me. Thank you so much. Oh, so I wanted to do what you do at the beginning of your show with a little trivia warm up. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, let's do it. See, now you can experience your guest experiences, right? I know. Now you can torture me back. Let's do it. Let's do it. This isn't going to be as stressful as your guests and like totally putting them on the spot. But I listened to your episode with Nathan. Nathan Shapiro. Shapiro. Okay. And you asked him a great one. It was, which is Shakespeare's shortest play? And I want to see if you remember, which will lead to our conversation. Okay. If I remember correctly, I'll give you the choices. Ready? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. So was it Merry Wives of Windsor, Comedy of Errors, or Hamlet? I think it was the Merry Wives of Windsor, right? Yes. Yes. Which, very good. I thought that that was a great question because it led to what Mr. Thrive Media is all about, right? Talk to me about the first play ever you were in. Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny because if you go back and you watch that little video clip, because it was all recorded, our dearly beloved theater teacher, Alan Hunt, loved to take take Shakespeare and then throw a modern twist into it. So we did like a modern day, it was Beatles themed. That Shakespeare play was Beatles 70s themed. And I was dressed up in like leather half gloves and a little leather hat and and had a fake mustache on me. Totally had, I guess this, I guess you could call it a San Francisco bear vibe going on for my character. Of course, Bardolf is totally a character up for interpretation, but my character, while not a major significant role, had a very significant line to me. It was the first line I ever said on stage and it really set the precedent for a lot of things I approached in my life. The first line he ever says is, it is a life that I have desired, I will thrive. You can see now that it has a pretty big impact on my life. That's where Mr. Thrive Media began without even knowing that I was creating a company or conceptualizing the ideology for a company that early on. What that just made me think about was the quote that you mentioned your dad says is attitude is aptitude. That's right. That kind of goes together. Yeah, it it very much does. And good callback for sure on your part. I I would say my father, both my parents have had a huge impact on me. My father helped me build my business. But I think with a quote like that, I can't help but think about people that I once considered friends that are no longer my friends. These are people that have this weird thought that there's no such thing as a bad day and there's such a thing as a perfect life. These are people that don't know how to handle basic pains of adulthood. The reason why we have butted heads and don't get along is because people like them can't understand the costs that come with life. And these are, this is kind of like a weird tangent. This is a kind of a weird thing that I wasn't expecting to talk about today. And I I love that, by the way, you kept me on my toes. Good job, Rina. I want to say that it is a life that I've desired. I will thrive is a mantra that you can throw anytime you are faced with that kind of cost in life. It's something that comes with the philosophy of being a stoic, that the only way to grow is to get through that pain. And I really do believe in stoicism. My personal philosophy is that there are two things that you need to be happy in life. And the two things are gratitude and masochism. You need to appreciate the pain. 
you need to find love for that. And that's uh, really where my core values come from. Yeah. Hey, so that was the can of worms you opened, not me. So that <laughs> I like that. And I know that you really touched upon that in your interview with Kevin Nahai. You admitted that you were angry and you went through a period of being angry. I love that, honestly, because I, I feel that. I have felt periods of that also. So I would love to know what caused that anger. Have you sat with that? Have you gotten to the root of it? Yeah, great, great question. You know, my anger came from feeling like I had everything in the world ripped out from under my feet. When the pandemic began, I had a full-time job working for the Jewish Federation. I had a little side hustle where that was producing podcasts. That was the the little baby, baby sapling of my business that I didn't even realize was going to be what it is today. But I also was living with my best friend and my girlfriend. And it was kind of this perfect friend scenario. My girlfriend at the time had been laid off from her job and she wasn't from California. So she had to move to Texas back where she was from. And because I don't do long distance relationships, our relationship came to a close. Our relationship, the moment that she was laid off, had an expiration date on it. And it was an awful feeling. It was an awful period that was circumstantial. There was nothing I could do to fix the problem, fix that point of our relationship, especially when it's the pandemic has just begun. The job market was completely down. She had given up hope for finding jobs within about two weeks and was already ramping up to head back home. And that was a really, really difficult thing for me to watch because it made me feel like she was giving up on me. And that's not true, by the way, but that's how it felt in that moment. And then what, what happened after that was following that the worst week of my life happened. And Izzy, who you've met, who actually now has a part, a major part to play in my business, witnessed this. He witnessed a lot of this. A lot of my close friends witnessed this week. And the, the week went as follows. Monday was a pretty normal day. Tuesday was my, was my big day. It's like one of the biggest days. The reason why Tuesday was a big day was because my now ex had to come and pick up all of her stuff. She had already moved, but left her stuff back because she didn't have a car big enough to take everything. So her and her parents came back from a road trip from Texas to come pick everything up. So I'm working at my full-time job at my desk while people are moving stuff behind me and I'm doing everything I can to stay sane. So now seeing my ex, the parents are judging me and I'm doing my job as much as possible. Following that, at the end of that day, it was the last day of this fellowship that I had been working for, this group called the Jewish Women's Theater. It was my last day. And I did my darndest to leave the best impression I could, even though my mind had now been totally clouded with not seeing my ex ever again from that point on, you know? So that was going on. And then this is the part where Izzy comes in. Izzy runs what's now called the Artist's Upsurge. And that night we were having our first event which was at the time called the Mr. Thrive Network. The Mr. Thrive Network was having its first event. Izzy and I had gotten into a little argument earlier that day. And now we were going into this event kind of from our own bedrooms, by the way, because again, we're still living in the same apartment together. We are not speaking to each other, but now we're hosting on this big event in our own rooms. And I remember that was probably the best part of the week was that we held this event and almost a hundred people flooded in, artists, entertainment professionals flooded in to network with one another. And it was wildly successful. It was huge. It was incredible. And I couldn't be more grateful. And as soon as the event was over, Izzy and I met each other in the hallway and we gave each other the biggest hug. All, all conflict that had been had before was resolved. And I was so, so proud. And of course, after a day like that, can't help but go to sleep by smoking a joint by the end of the night because you just need to chill. Wednesday was a normal day. Jewish Federation was a normal day. Thursday, I had a, I was having a meeting with my boss at the Jewish Federation. And then suddenly HR sent me an email out of nowhere, unexpected, saying, we regret to inform you that you've been laid off. And every action item that my boss had just given me, I had to interrupt her and say, I'm sorry, but I just got laid off. I can't help you anymore. I called her for 10 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, the Jewish Federation, because of their security protocol, logged me out as soon as possible. So I couldn't even email my colleagues goodbye. I, I, my heart, was, I, I just felt completely numb. My heart didn't feel anything. I didn't have time to feel. I also had the, I was going to move into a new place at the time as well. And I had to inform the landlord of what just happened. And he was very uh, accepting and let me shred up the lease that I had just signed. So I was very grateful for that, but still really heartbreaking. It was going to be a really nice place too. Following that was the 4th of July. And the 4th of July, that day, Izzy and I, Izzy was not with me, but instead it was my two friends, Jordan and Sam. They're both really close friends of mine. And on the 4th of July, we decided to do what everyone does, which is go to the park, play football. Well, that day I sprained my ankle. And now I'm on the ground crying, holding back tears. And my friend had to drive me home and I was limping. And this is after I just started having a virtual gym trainer. This is the first time anyone's ever had a virtual gym trainer in their life. But now my virtual gym trainer is giving me physical therapy on how to move my foot again for the next month. I couldn't run. I had just fallen in love with running. So there were all these things that I loved 
all in one week that I couldn't have anymore. And I had to call my parents with a sprained ankle and tell them exactly the week I had had and told them that I needed to move in. And they let me move in with them. I was very grateful. That was the start for a really big chapter in my life. 2021 ended up being the best year of my life because my parents empowered me in the year of 2020 to really regather my resources, understand the kind of man that I can be and put me in the place to build this business that I have today. That, so that, was, is... that was how that chapter starts in my life. Whoa, that's amazing. How long did you stay with them? I stayed with my parents for 10 months. It took me 10 months to become self-sufficient with my business. It was not easy and it was very frustrating and a lot of tears and a lot of anxiety and a lot of sacrifices took place to get here. And I'm very grateful. Whoa, I would love to hear your thoughts on what makes great parents. I can very easily simplify that. You know, these are attributes of my parents, Lori and Joel Volk. Lori and Joel Volk didn't give me things after I was 18. They gave me the resources to get my own things. And again, going back to the kind of people that I mentioned at the beginning that I do not get along with. These are people that were spoon-fed things on a silver platter, and they still are, and they're almost 30 years old. And I think about them all the time, and I'm like, wow, I am so glad that my parents without knowing it, they don't realize it. It's funny because we've debated this about my philosophy too, about what, what the, the two secrets to, to happiness, but they don't realize it, but they, they raised me to believe in this. And I'm grateful they did is that they raised me to accept pain. They, they raised me to lean into it and find a solace in it. They did that by giving me the resources. They stopped giving me things. They gave me the resources to get my own things. And that really is it. That's the secret. Did you ever butt heads with them? Oh, all the time. I mean, anyone who I've ever loved has pissed me off at least once in my life. And my parents have pissed me off many a times, but that's our relationship. We're very, very close. And I'm an only child. So there were no siblings to bully me. My skin's very thin. I'm a very emotional person as it is. That's why I was very angry for so long. And that anger, I learned how to turn into a good fuel source. That's where I am today. Uh, I'm no how? longer angry, by the way. I want I, to know how you turned it into a good fuel source. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Rena. Have you ever been so angry that you screamed into a pillow or you punched, even got physical, physical in general? I mean, it doesn't have to be uh, anything, but you know that energy that comes from that feeling? Yeah, I do. That energy can be turned into a fuel source. The way that a car, a hybrid car can switch from gas to electric, human beings can switch from happy motivation to angry motivation. I think you need to have specific role models to really see that. You, you know, for me, I love Star Wars. So when it comes to my role models, I, I, I oftentimes think about source of happiness, which is, you know, a character like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? And Obi-Wan Kenobi is a very wise and pleasant and jovial character. You see him throughout. Hello there. You know, he's very, he's very funny. He's, ve he's, a, he's a very classy character. And I think that a lot of people's motivations can come from that. But then on the exact opposite side is a character like Darth Maul. And if you've watched the Clone Wars and if you've watched uh, Star Wars Rebels, you really see this amazing character development of Darth Maul beyond what the main Star Wars saga had given us. He's an insane character that's really, really cool. He's a character of wrath. He's a character of hate. But most of all, he's passionate. He's very passionate. And that's a word that people typically do not assign Darth Maul. If you see the passion behind Darth Maul's actions, he will tread through deserts, he will demolish governments, he will do whatever he needs to, to get from point A to point B. And that's very much a role model I see for someone being angry. I think too often we're told not to get emotional. We're told to repress it. We're told to not allow ourselves to get angry. We're said that if you scream into a pillow or punch a punching bag out of anger, that it's a flaw. No, it's not a flaw. That's born into you. That's just an innate instinctual part of being a human being. You can take that energy and use it to accomplish any of your wildest dreams. So why would you ever let it stop you? Why would you ever repress that? It's such a flaw in how we think. It's such a flaw in how traditional school systems raise us to do. I was going to say, did you have trouble with that in school? And how did your parents respond to anger? Great question. Well, school, definitely something like PE is a good physical outlet. I, I would say that not a whole lot of my schools, to my knowledge, growing up had a good mental health course. In fact, the two major thing, times I could think about was, you know, I had a counselor in elementary school who taught me how to make friends. And I had in high school, there was um, a life skills teacher who gave good life advice. But beyond that, no one really, no one really gave us permission to be angry. No one ever really gave us permission to feel things. Again, if you ever seen the seen the movie that recently came out, Don't Look Up, they talk about this flaw that we have in society that everything has to be so goddamn pleasant all the time. 
And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be so pleasant. You know, human beings are not meant to be pleasant 100% of the time. That's mentally unhealthy. That's the definition of suffering. But when it comes to, yeah. yeah, when it comes to my parents, I definitely saw them display anger. I love them deeply. And I, I say this from a place of endearment. I wouldn't say that they always handled their anger the right way. And that's okay. They're human beings. They're going to make mistakes. I can't ask for more perfect parents than what I already have. They weren't perfect. They didn't ever prioritize mental health the way that I have in my life. My plan in, in my long-term life is to live out their legacy and, and prove why mental health is so valuable. What are their thoughts on legacy? Now, that's a question. I don't entirely know. I can't speak entirely for them. But being an only child, I think the answer has to be me and whatever I do. And, you know, without knowing it, that was a pressure that I started to realize maybe about five years ago, like, wow, I'm an only child. And that's why my health is so important. That's why I care so much about my health. Even though, you know, during this whole COVID situation, I'm not immunocompromised. I'm a pretty healthy person. I was born with really good quality genes, I think, but I still have to take care of myself. And I'm to this day, I've never gotten COVID. That's one thing, for example, that made me prioritize my health. I was realizing, wow, if I'm done, the family legacy is done. I'm the last Volk until I marry someone and have my own children. That's, that's a scary thought. And like, it's not that Volk, it needs to be a huge name that's shined on the walls of skyscrapers. It's the thought that I really want my parents to have grandchildren because they deserve it. And I want this family to be big, but it bottlenecks to me and the decisions I make. That's what makes it a little, little stressful. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, do you feel any pressure around that? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. I'm also ready to do it too. I'm ready. I'm, I'm in the right mindset to raise children one day. You know, I definitely want children one day. Okay. So I know that you have dabbled in the H community yeah, and they are big around forming a family and, you know, the separation of gender roles and all of those things. Have you thought about that? And I also know what dating is like in LA. I mean, I was there in my twenties right? and yeah, I would love to know your experience with dating in LA and having those serious conversations and really coming to the point of being ready. What does that look like? It's a great question. All of my close friends right now are single, including me. We're all single bachelors in our mid-20s looking for love. That's what we are. And a few thoughts kind of shot through my head at once when you were when you asked that question. The first one is that there's a great quote that my friend Zohar sent me. Zohar said that oftentimes we think we want love, but we really want the intimacy that comes from love. I thought about that. That's a good point. That's a really good point. That's why sometimes when we date someone, and even though things might feel emotionally, intellectually, and physically connected, that it's just not there because that intimacy that comes with a long, meaningful relationship is not there. And by the way, Rena, I know that you are someone in a deep, beautiful relationship. So I'm no, I know that you can relate to that. Definitely. And that also evolves. Oh, yeah. I mean, I what you're looking for at 22 to 25 is much different than what you're looking for closer to 30 or 40. That's right. Now, in And that age- intimacy level too changes. Right. Yeah. But I love that quote. And I honestly feel like that might even be different for men versus women. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We're built differently. You know, we, we, we both have men and women and all genders that exist. They all have different brain chemistry. That's the defining factor in it. And that's what changes it so dramatically. You know, Kevin DeHai, who was on this podcast, said something to me that was brilliant. He says a lot of things that are brilliant, but this is one of the things that he said that was brilliant. He says that there's so many stars that have to align in order for a romance to actually be healthy and long, long term. That's why marriage is such a miracle. He said that. And I I think about that that all the time. I think about what stars exactly are there. And maybe I have to go and write this down. I haven't really thought about what the exact stars are that need to align. But I suppose those are the deal breakers. Those are basic forms of attraction followed by the more complicated forms of attraction. For me, I've never had one ex that looked like another ex. All of my exes look different. So the so physicality is it's not second, but it's I would say it's it's not as important to me as emotional and intellectual attraction. That's so important to me. I, I I love intelligent women. I love women who are confident in their own skin. I use the word woman, by the way, on purpose. I don't date girls. That's decided by by maturity level. So there's a whole maturity level there too that I really, really care about. But when it comes to the Aish community and that question, that was that, that was a really interesting question for sure. I didn't expect to go there either. And I love this interview because I haven't answered these questions before. I've dated more religious women before. I'm still open to it because I actually would love to raise my children Jewishly. I wouldn't mind keeping a, a kosher home. I, I really want to learn Hebrew this year because it, to me, it would make me feel more spiritually closer to God. I want 
to be more holy. That very much is something that has become important to me lately because I'm at that mentally healthy place where I, I have my own understanding of God that I very much resonate with and connect with. It helps me feel more independent. It helps me feel like my identity is more whole. So dating within the Aish community, I would say has been wonderful. I mean, nothing has stuck long-term. There was one that got away, so to speak. There's one person I'm thinking of in particular, the one that got away. In terms of stars being aligned, we just weren't in the right place. That's another situation right there. But she's someone I think about on a regular basis that I do care deeply about, and I hope she's well. That is really cool. Oh, wow. There are so many things I just want to ask you, but what do you define as holy? Like what is holiness for you? I know the Jewish interpretation, the Jewish interpretation of holiness is being closer to God. When you separate yourself to be closer to God. I mean, it can literally be something as for some reason you needed to be alone and you were in a busy street in New York. If you simply had walked into an alley to read from the Sidur, that in itself is holiness because you're separating yourself from other people. Something as simple as that. You don't have to be in a synagogue to be holy. You don't even have to speak Hebrew fluently to be holy. But for me, I believe I'm ready to start learning the language of it. For me, to be holy is a connection between physical, emotional, and spiritual. That's how I would define that. What sparked that? Yom Kippur last year, for me, I felt rather detached. I felt detached because me and my family were, were watching from Zoom. We were doing a Zoom service. It turned out we had ordered the wrong Cedarim. We did not have the right Cedarim to follow along with our rabbi at our synagogue. Of course, I knew most of the prayers because I had my bar mitzvah. Again, another great parent, great moment for my, that my parents granted me. You know, I'm very thankful for that. I had my bar mitzvah and I just, I began to realize like, oh, you know what? Like, I don't know the words. I don't know all the words in English. I couldn't translate it in my head which means they might as well be speaking Mandarin. They might as well be speaking Greek, you know? And it really upset me. It really upset me to think about the fact that I've learned to chant sounds. I've not learned to chant language. That was the problem with the way that I was raised in synagogue. My Hebrew school was less of a Hebrew school and more of a bar mitzvah training school. It was a great Hebrew school. There was a lot of Jewish values they taught very well, but my Hebrew school never really taught me the language, only taught me how to make the sounds of the language. I really want that connection to be more authentic now. And I know that Hebrew is the key to that. That's really cool. How did you find Aish? I specifically go to Aish Lit. Oh, okay, okay. I yeah. don't know the difference. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? This is a perfect question because it actually ties into the first thing that I said about staying away from people that can't handle pain. I had just ended a friendship. I had a friendship breakup with someone that really, really upset me. It caused me to kind of separate myself from this friend group that I used to think I was committed to. And suddenly I felt like I was friendless, except for my best friend who was in that friend group who said, you know, you should check out this group called Aish Lit. And I remember going into this random home in the Pico Robertson area. Next thing I know, I'm meeting all these Jews for the first time. And this modern Orthodox family welcomed me into their home. It's their Aish Lit's like kind of a, a smaller sect of Aisha Torah. And they bring everyone in to their home, really no matter what your background is, because they want you to make friends. They want you to get in touch with their Judaism. But the last thing they're going to do is impose their practice of Judaism on you. And I really, really like that about Aish Lit is that you can really come as you are and meet wonderful people in that process without feeling pressured to be a certain type of Jew. And I would say this is a shout out to Rabbi Jack and Shira Malol of Eishlit. They are a wonderful couple that has really helped me kind of discover that holiness. And they never said, sit down and read from the Torah. You know, they never said you need to eat like this in order to have a, a better life. You know, they definitely encourage kosher and you eat kosher in their home. They've shed good light on what Judaism is in my mind. And I'm really grateful for that. That's really cool. And you could see yourself doing that, like taking on all of that? Not on their level. I think there's some there's some happy medium. And this is part of my journey is figuring out where, where my happy medium is. Maybe my happy medium ends up not being a happy medium at all. And I go into a very extreme place in my life. I don't see that happening. I see myself raising my family on a more stricter conservative side when it comes to Judaism. That's where I see my life heading towards. When you first date someone, is that like a conversation that you plan on having? It actually has been recently. Yeah. I, I only date Jewish now. And funny enough, the last date I had, the last first date I had, I actually told her off the bat, I was a little bit nervous. And it was the first time I had been nervous on a first date in a long time. But I said to her, I'm a little nervous because I know that she's a little bit more on the religious side. And she said to me something that I was incredibly grateful for to the point where I was just so relieved. She said, listen, you and enjoy your journey in Judaism and I'll enjoy my journey in Judaism. So long as neither of us are imposing each other's journeys on each other, I'm happy with that. And my first thought was, oh, 
Baruch Hashem. Like, like, why aren't they all like that? And it was such a great feeling, honestly. I absolutely love that. I think that's a great way to be. I think so too. And she's a really special person. She's great. Wow. Okay. Now I want to kind of like talk shop for a little bit because I just got like super personal and I don't know how to like perfectly transition that except for the fact that. <laughs> yeah, that's you, okay. Yeah, like. It, it is really interesting that you've gotten involved in Judaism and you went from working in film and being a part of the industry to making your career even in Judaism. That That's so interesting to me. Like you went yeah. from working in Lifetime movies to working at the Jewish Federation. Like that's such an interesting switch. Yes, that was an interesting transition for sure. I just was tired of the film industry because it wasn't fulfilling in the capacity I was working in it. I was the sound guy. I was the guy with the boom pole recording major important names like Gordon Ramsay and Terry Crews and Howie Mandel, Tony Hawk. And I was working with these really interesting personalities that there was a lot that I connected with, but quite frankly, there was still something not connecting with me. Also, the company I worked for was a place you work to let your dreams die. And I really did not like working there. I was getting paid minimum wage to do sound mixing work, which is, you know, in technical terms in the film industry, bullshit. So I started a podcast in the green room of that company when we were in our off seasons. And I started interviewing my coworkers because they were the most interesting people I knew. And from that experience, I used that to quit my job and then do the starving artist thing, which led me to actually the worst job of my life. And I started working for Dave and Buster's in Hollywood. I was working in this miserable place. It's a pretty bad place to work. I got to say that, you know, during that time when I worked there, that's when my dad came up to me. He said, you know, I really like what you're doing. I want a podcast too, but I want to make it about small business. And my first thought was, oh, I don't want to work for you. But it was the best thing I ever agreed to do because he became my first client. And in return, I became his first client because now he's a business coach and he taught me how to build my business. I couldn't be, again, gratitude. You'll you hear that a motif of mine is gratitude here. I'm, I'm grateful for that moment as well. Wow. That is so aligned with this show because my dad wanted me to create my own show forever. I mean, and I knew that he wouldn't back out on me. So That's in a right. lot of ways, he's mentoring me through this whole process. And mm-hmm. what's amazing about collaborating with somebody of that generation is that they're cool with patience. They are cool with the long haul and they know that success does not happen overnight. My dad was very patient with me and my mom was too when we lived together. That that patience goes a long way in mentorship. If you didn't have patience, you wouldn't have the ability to achieve anything that the mentee's trying to accomplish. Okay, so I want to know about like the whole journey with your dad and creating his show. I mean, how freaking cool is that? Like, what did that look like from the beginning? The first time we ever started talking about my business, I was already producing my dad's podcast at the time. And we were trying to, I was figuring out this new format for a podcast because no two podcasts are the same. So even though I had my show, now I'm producing my dad's show and he had his way that he wanted it produced. And I'm like, okay, all right. I guess, I guess we'll do a sneak peek at the every at the end of every episode, which was such a pain in the ass. It's not a pain in the ass anymore. But at the time I thought to myself, it was such a pain in the ass. So now my dad wants to meet, meet with me to get sushi and we get sushi. And I remember literally on a napkin, he drew out pricing structures and how they work. And he explained to me the concept the relativity with pricing, the the clever concept where, well, we always want, let's say it would be ideal for every customer to pay for this package. Is that a big number? Is that a small number? I said, I don't know. He says, exactly. You're never going to know if that's a big number unless you have something to compare it to. Then he compared it to the next biggest size. And then he compared it to another size that was small. And he says, ideally, you want people to always go for the middle number. You always want people to go for the medium height because human beings as an instinct always want to go for something that is in the middle. They don't want too cheap. They don't want too expensive. They want just right. They have that little red riding hood concept. And so that was something my dad taught me. And very much of my business is based on that now. One of the key concepts anyway. Yeah, I go to my dad for pricing too. I want to know what a sneak peek is. When a podcast ends, it's giving you a sneak peek into the next episode. So they'll, they'll give you like a 30 second clip from the, like a, a nice little juicy piece from the next episode that you have planned, letting your audience know, oh, well, here's a new episode that you got to stay in touch with. And you find a really good piece where maybe something sensationalized is happening, or there's a really good sneaky bit of information. And they're about to tell you the big secret sauce and then suddenly cut. Stay tuned for next week. <laughs> you got them. You rope them in like that. And it's great. So it's a cliffhanger. The thing cliffhanger. is about that though, is I don't know about you, but I change sometimes the order that I air 
guess. So if you do a sneak peek, you're set with what you have to air next. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I actually heard you talking about creating like a content calendar and being super organized in that way. Did that happen right away with your dad? Like, did he want processes? You know, it actually did not. I kind of had an idea for how to produce a podcast and it was a lot of trial and error. You know, honestly, it was trial and error through my show and my dad's show until before my third client, you know, I just remember kind of shooting from the hip. And sometimes, by the way, you're allowed to shoot from the hip to this day, but there's still a process that you should go through. And it's laborious, you know, when it comes to producing a podcast, you have to be ready for every technical step along the way. I'm actually in the middle of one right now, right before this interview, I had just gotten done with this one podcast and creating the collateral for it. And now I got to go schedule that for release for tomorrow's episode. And it's going to be a big deal. And I'm really excited. Can you give us any more? That's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's going to be a song, I'm sure by the time that this episode airs, that is going to be public for release. It's a collaboration between Billy Ray Cyrus and Snoop Dogg. I just interviewed the music producer for that because this is his first big break. He's had a few opportunities in the past, but I just interviewed this gentleman. He's very quiet. He's very calm and collected, but he's very wise. And he has so much to offer. And he came on to kind of give some exclusive information about this release. And one thing as well that was kind of cool was outside the podcast, he actually had me come on to the studio to do background vocals. So when you hear that song and you hear a whole theatrical sound of people chanting to the chorus, I'm one of the voices. And I'm really, really excited for you to hear it. Okay. So one question that you always ask at the end of every one of your podcasts is, what do you want to be famous for? Is that it right there? (laughs) Yeah. And that's it. Just for that one song. That's right. All this work and this one unrelated medium is how I got famous. Absolutely. That's right. This kind of segues. I would love to talk about how do you get introverted guests to tell their story better? Because Mm. I feel like that's a common question I've been asked. I'm interested in how you would respond to that. That's a great question. First of all, you can never change someone. And if the person isn't willing to be there on the show, then do not force it. Tell them, let's wait for another time until you're ready. People will talk when they're ready can never force someone to talk. And it's never fun to interview someone that's introverted. The second thing as well is that they're not all winners, not always going to be winners. When you go and create content, you have to allow yourself to fail. You have to allow yourself to put out content that you're not going to be the most proud of. I heard of this one podcast producer. What happened was he released 20 episodes of his podcast and he decided he was going to release all 20 episodes at once. He wanted to start his podcast loud, basically, which is a strategy. You can create a lot of episodes and then release them all at once. That way people have a base to start with and then go from there. You can totally do that. That's totally fine. You know what he did? He was such a perfectionist that he deleted all 20 episodes. I think about that all the time. And I think about all the time that he wasted of his guests. And first of all, very selfish on his part. The second thing is that, I mean, God, if you're trying to live your life, trying to cling on to perfection, again, it's another form of suffering. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to the guests? That's the learning curve. That's what's going to happen. So it's just silly to me. It's just very silly to, you know, you can use any form of content, even if it's not perfect and reuse it in some form of way. There's this great YouTube channel called Yes Theory. I love them. Their motto, their mantra is seek discomfort. They're really, really fantastic. They're always vlogging the most random things. They're they're vlogging their adventures. But of course, as you can imagine, there's a lot of outtakes in them. They revisit those outtakes all the time by telling stories that maybe weren't relevant to that episode in that moment, but somehow become relevant in later on episodes. So they're constantly recycling content even if it wasn't used, they're not deleting any of it because there's something from there that's valuable. No matter how low fidelity the quality might be, you should always find a way to use it. There's never reason not to. Have you ever not aired an episode? Yeah, there was an episode. I wouldn't even call it an episode. I don't know what you'd call it. In terms of letting yourself get angry, I did a solo episode all by myself. It's an episode where I just ranted. I ranted about all the things I was angry at because I had so much anxiety and anger built up inside me and I just had to get it out of my system. And I sat at my computer alone in my room with my microphone and I recorded something for an hour. And I still have it on my computer to this day. It's still, I still have it saved. I'm not ready to share it. It's titled X. It's titled X. I'm probably going to release it as X one day because I think it's a good documentation for what people kind of went through during the pandemic. This 2020 was an insane year for everyone. Didn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. Everyone was 
unhappy with something. And I still think there's a lot of unhappiness with that year and how things unfolded. The fallout of that year is still pretty evident. You know, we should never forget what happened and I'm saving it because I don't want to forget. It really did shape the person I am today. I am curious though, like when you became proud to be a Jew. I think of a few different moments. There's a lot of moments. Growing up, I dealt with a lot of anti-Semitism. I was bullied. I was the Jew in my school. I was the victim of a hate crime in middle school where they vandalized my locker. And I just remember part of the reason why I Will Thrive from Bardolph's character in the Mary Wives of Windsor was so important to me was because I was still healing at the time from that. When I got to say that, it was it was kind of a moment of, of pride as well. It felt like a very Jewish moment for me. I was proud to be a Jew when on my alternative trip during spring break, I went and did the act of Tikkun Olam and repaired homes in Austin, Texas after their double disaster they had from the flooding. I was incredibly proud to be Jewish on my lawsuit, my class action case that took place against my school, San Francisco State. If you go and look up Volk for CSU Board of Trustees, you'll see that I sued my school and I won. So, what? Yeah, that was a pretty great experience. What it happened there? It wasn't fun, there? but it ended up being great in the sense that I was, I, the moment I found out we won, that they had settled and gave us everything that we wanted times two. I just remember feeling chills and I, I couldn't believe it. So I, I was incredibly grateful. Okay, I didn't Google that. So you got to give me the quick and dirty. San Francisco State basically had a long history of systemic racism. What happened was based on a few incidents that happened at that school, I was reached out by this organization based in New York called the Lawfare Project. And the Lawfare Project recruited me to be their lead plaintiff, along with a few other brothers from my fraternity, AEPI. What happened was we went into this class action case. A few years down the line, we were sent to San Francisco to go in and we were prepared. By the way, this was on my birthday, March 18th. The judge had said that on my birthday, I was going to do the lawsuit. And I really wasn't looking forward to being in court on my birthday. I thought to myself, great, this is going to be the worst birthday of my life. But it was actually one of the best birthdays of my life. It really, really was. That was 2019. I just remember like the invincible feeling of being invigorated. That was a good feeling. That was That's great. amazing. Thank you. Whoa, that makes your birthday like so much more powerful now. Yeah, thank I appreciate that. I appreciate it. It's very hard to one-up that every year, honestly. I would I've say pr- so. I- I've had some pretty epic birthdays since then. <laughs> Whoa. Oh my God. That's amazing. That has to be one of your moments that you're like, if I can do that, I can get over really hard things. Hit the nail on the head. Have you had any moments like that in creating a show, in creating content for people? Like, have you had any moments where you're doing that happy dance where you're like, this is what I should be doing? Like, this gets me high. Yeah. You know, a lot of my podcasts are interview based. They're interview business podcasts that, you know, there's a lot of inspiring stuff when it comes to talking about business leadership and whatnot. I I like producing content like that, but I love it when I'm given the ability to be creative and to create something that's more on the narrative side. And so I've done it with myself. I've created a few narrative episodes on my podcast. And that always gives me this incredible feeling. The most recent narrative episode I did on my show was a welcome to 2022. And I read this poem called Deseridata. And it's a Latin term that means things desired. And it was this beautiful poem that everyone should read. I don't have it memorized, so I can't recite it. But, you know, that's a that's something that made me feel giddy afterwards. You know, I love it when clients want me to produce something like that with them as well. And I go and create a whole narrative story with them, telling the story of their business. And I am allowed to get creative. And I even put in sound effects and music behind it to kind of give this cinematic experience, even though it's only audio. And that's a good feeling. I love that because that that's really why I got into this is to get creative and to tell stories and to kind of bring perspective to these brands. I'm very grateful for that. What makes a good collaborative partner? A great collaborative partner is someone that understands that working with me in in my situation, I I am the expert in the podcast and that there's a lot of good wisdom that I can provide. And there's a lot of great suggestions I can give on my end though. You know, you said what makes a good collaborative partner. It's more accurate to say what makes a good collaborative partnership because it's a two-way street. And I also need to be flexible with them because I, I have clients who have hard boundaries that I got to respect. And I've even pitched the idea of, oh, can I put a sound effect here? And they'll go, no, do not. It sounds cheesy. I'm like, okay, all right. That's fine with me. It's a two-way street of mutual listening. And I would say, Rena, and you can relate to this, it probably leads to a good marriage too, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Communication is of the utmost importance. And I feel very blessed that my husband is a very good communicator. Communication is very, very important. Oh, absolutely. What are your thoughts on what makes a good guest? I know you have a little bit of a different process than me. You pre-interview pretty much everybody that you talk to. Do you disqualify people? 
I have disqualified people. Those are people that I'll meet ahead of time. I, I've also told people, by the way, people have asked to be on my podcast and I've said to them, hey, I'll tell you what, when you accomplish this, you can be on my podcast. I've said that to people flat out. I need people to have something under their belt before I can bring them on. If they're only a self-proclaimed insert position here, a self-proclaimed artist, and they haven't done a lot to really prove that, what can I build off of that? You know? So that's a concept right there. What does it take to have a good guest? I think you have to figure out what matches best with your personality. It's okay to think selfishly because remember this, people don't listen to podcasts because they want to listen to a podcast. People want to listen to podcasts because they like the host of the show. That's the secret to it. You have to be likable unless you choose people that are completely unrelated to the type of person you like to talk to. Now, luckily I'm a very amical guy. I'm very flexible. I can talk to a whole lot of people. In fact, it disturbs me when I meet someone that I can't talk to. It makes me think there's something either wrong with me or something wrong with them. Typically, neither is the case. And I'm just overthinking because I'm an overthinker. What I do in my pre-interview sessions, when I meet people ahead of time, tell them what they should expect in the podcast. If they start telling me their life story in the pre-interview session, I say, wait, 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 don't tell me everything. I want there to be more authentic feel for the interview. I only want the skeleton. I don't want the full body. You know, I'm just getting the train tracks for where we're going to go. I'm not getting us to the destination yet. So just wait for the interview and they'll give me bullet points of their life. And they'll tell me what they're trying to push in their podcast. And now I have a very clear call to action. I have a very clear story. And after that, my job is just to connect the dots. And it makes it a whole lot easier in my opinion. Do most of your clients do pre-interviews? Some of them do, not all of them. I recommend accordingly. And, and the reality is this is where podcasts become more art than science. No two podcasts are the same. No two podcasts has the same format. And I think that that's, I think that's a good thing, honestly. Even though these podcasts are from a business angle that I produce, so many of these shows have become personal to my clients. These are their babies and I got to take care of them. So I'm really just a babysitter. <laughs> That's not true, but I really am treating these podcasts with care because I respect the business owner and what they're doing. Okay. I want to go to my Facebook questions and you can say yay or nay. Okay. Well, one said, share all the secrets. Obviously, yeah. we're, we're not going to do that. I'm trying to think, is, is there any secret I can tell? I'll give one secret. It's a cute question. I, I like it. Here's a good secret for finding good guests as well. Here's another good way to find guests. There's a great website called matchmaker.fm. And matchmaker.fm, it does sound like a dating site, but it's actually a place where you can create a profile as a podcaster and tell that version of Facebook. It's not Facebook, but it's, it's kind of framed like Facebook to find guests. So it's specifically a place to find guests. And as soon as you create your profile and tell people what you do, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people out there through matchmaker.fm who are trying to get on podcasts. I don't use matchmaker.fm anymore because a lot of my guests have to reach a certain, they can't just message me. I have to find them. There has to be a natural introduction. And because of that, I get flooded with messages all the time about being on my show. And so I now have a plethora of people to choose from that are good. And by the way, these are good quality people most of the time. You got to vet them as well. I didn't know about that one, but I will say alongside that, there's like Podmatch, there's Podcast Booker. I mean, there's so many of these types of sites. Some of them are probably for pay. But... I believe so. I believe so. But yeah, I have actually taken some pitches from those types of services. One reason I love working with you on a variety of things is that you are a giver. You are the definition of a giver. If I was a PR agency, me as a podcast host, if I accepted all these different people, I'm helping the PR agency now. I'm really being a support system for them, getting a lot of their clients on there. And then suddenly I've developed a bonding rapport and there's a big strategy you can play there. There's a lot you can leverage there in that kind of relationship. And you should totally capitalize on that. That makes me want to circle back with the ones who contact me and give them a little love right now. That's true. Okay. We kind of touched on how to find quality guests. That was Jacob Lethbridge. He's very cool. He's been on my show. Awesome. Best budget gear, high-end gear. Do you have any favorite recommendations there? This is one of the questions I was a little bit iffy on because it's so arbitrary. And I think it's, there's so many different YouTube tutorials. I would rather just not answer that question because, it, and I don't mean to be exclusive like that. It's, it's just because there's YouTube. Go check it out. Type yeah. in best, best mics. You'll get the best answers. Okay. How about ways to market and promote? I feel like that is what all podcasters want to know that are starting out. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll tie it into what I was saying earlier about finding guests with that website, matchmaker.fm cross promotion is a great strategy. So get on as many podcasts as yourself as the guest. Do not try to just build popularity off of your show alone. Go on to other podcasts, introduce yourselves. And when you get there, by the way, don't sell. You're not on there to sell. You're on there to contribute to their content. You have to give if you want to receive. So go on there, put your best foot forward and develop that relationship because those kind of relationships uh, allow for everyone to win at the end of the day. I love that. Okay. Duke Lott wants to know, how do you choose what podcast to produce? I've heard you talk about this a little bit. Yeah. And I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to let you go with it. I think that was actually my favorite question that I saw on the Facebook group. For those who are not on the Facebook group, they need to go check it out. It's business laughs on LinkedIn, right? I love that it. That is it's right. A- Thank it's such you. A, it's such a good, it's such a good Facebook group. I love it. Thank um, you. And you always have the best prompts and you are so good at organizing it. So, well, kudos to you, Rena. seriously. I appreciate that. Especially as someone who I love going to your community events as well. Mr. Thank Thrive you. Media. The last one was like emerging artists upsurge. Artists upsurge. So, so that was a rebrand that we recently had as the artists upsurge. And it's a great rebrand. I got to hand it to my team, Izzy Salant and Amanda Friedlander and and Courtney Risner, they're all just really fantastic to work with. They're, I have a really good team behind me on that for sure. In regards to the question, there's a lot of things. For starters, we, you know, my company has a code of ethics. So if you're approaching me to talk about having a podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with producing a hobby, but no one ever needs to have a hobby. And I only produce podcasts for the businesses that have needs. Oftentimes their needs are they want to enhance their marketing. They want to boost their branding. They want to have a new and unique sales tool. They want to be able to establish themselves as a certain authority figure in their niche. If those pain points are said, those pain indicators are said, then I'll be happy to work with you because that's a need basis. In terms of my code of ethics though, I've had some very funny answers before when I asked them, why do you want a podcast? Here's the funniest answer I ever heard, right? It was great. This happened last year, okay? Someone came on, they reached out to me from LinkedIn. They used to work in Hollywood and now they want to have a podcast and they want to talk to a podcast producer. So my first question to them was, why do you want to have a podcast? You know what he said to me? He said to me, because I want to be famous. And typically by this point in the conversation, I say, oh, I don't think you understand. I don't sell, I don't sell fame. I sell podcasts, but what would you like? And instead I decided to say, okay, well, what do you want to do with that fame? And he said, oh, I guess I would sell something. What do you want to sell? He goes, oh, I'd want to sell medicine. And I said, oh, so you're a pharmacist or a doctor? He goes, no, I, I was just hospitalized a lot as a kid and I now have uh, reviews on, on them. I'm like, like, no, that, that was against my code of ethics right off the bat. Oh my gosh, yeah, whoa. Produce podcasts that are in your core competency and produce podcasts that align with your uh, ethics and standards. If you can stand by it, then produce it. Why should people work with a podcast producer? That's a good question. You know, when I started my podcast, if you go way, way back to episode one, you can hear every single mistake in the book and you probably will find typos. I haven't gone back and edited it yet. You know, every mistake I could have made, I made. You know, I had a, a really, really long title with a very unflattering cartoon picture of myself and a lot of the typical typical stereotypes. And there was nothing really that stood out about the show. Have a podcast producer to help you get around those mistakes. You don't have to worry about the learning curve. You just have to worry about showing up and speaking about what you know best. And that's the value of having a podcast producer. I actually love that. You learn and tweak by the feedback you receive. But it's funny because even last night, I was going back through some of my earlier episodes and adding to the descriptions because I was like, you know what? Now I'm writing like much better descriptions, but I'm 200 episodes in. I was like, I could fill these out a little bit more. And that'll be good for SEO down the road. You know, so why not? Now I have some free time. Maybe I should go back through my first 20, 30 episodes and beef them up a little bit, right? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Oh my God. Couldn't agree more. How do you re-market old episodes? Hashtag throwback is your best friend. You know, you can make a hashtag throwback Thursday post every single week and say, hey, throwback to episode 54, where this guy choked on water when I said a joke and, you know, like whatever it is, give it a reason. Also, maybe there's a particular topic that aligns with the holiday. Use those holidays to bring back a podcast. For example, we have Valentine's Day coming up just around the corner. I don't know when this episode is going to air, but you could do a romance throwback. Say, hey, let's throw back to five episodes back when we had romance coach X 
talk about this. You know, there's a lot of really good subject matter that you can totally utilize. Find current events to leverage throwbacks with. I love that. Okay. Final question. Is there anything you'd like to ask my dad? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to ask your dad this very important question. Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? I like it. Nobody has asked him that. I can't wait to hear his answer. Oh my gosh. All right, Chaz, this has been so amazing. And thank you so much for all of those amazing tips. How can people hire you as their podcast producer, support your social media, all of that? Before I even say that, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on Better Call Daddy. I remember the moment you reached out to me and I got so excited about connecting with you. And really, Rena, you are a giver and I'm so grateful. And I look forward to all the different stuff that we can do together working forward. When it comes to reaching out to me, you can find our website, mrthrive.com. That is mrthrive.com. You can follow our socials at Mr. Thrive Media, or you can come my personal social, which is at Mr. Chaz Volk. Lastly, come check out the artist's Upsurge, which is basically a second business at this point. If you are an artist or entertainment professional looking to network with people in our in our industry, I know that there's so much value there that you can find. And we make it a point that when you register, that you can actually choose the type of artist you want to network with that night, which allows you the ability to network to your fullest potential. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate this. And this has been such a treat. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. I'm not sure I know what his question means. To fight 100 horses the size of ducks or a duck the size of a horse. The best guess is that that really doesn't matter. We have little battles in our lives, and we have to face all of those. And sometimes you have to face a big battle. and You have to use the same diligence and to fight all battles, big and small. And uh, we can't really let any of them get us down. And uh, the challenge is to overcome whatever obstacles that are in our path. I really like the back and forth that you had with Chaz. And when you're doing a podcast and you're just trying to sell something, I think that that is not really the intention of his podcast or yours. You're all trying to do is to try to discuss things naturally something where we can participate and do some good and put some positive spin to our lives and where we can learn lessons and hopefully pass each other some wisdom for the future. He even brings up that he realized, especially with the pandemic going around, that being an only child, that he has a legacy to follow through on. What's really ironic about it is that he was going his own way and he had a week out of hell where just everything could go wrong. And people that really rallied behind him was his father and mother, where he had to move back in with them for 10 months. And when he kicked off his his podcast, it ended up that he also kicked off a podcast with his father. That blending of the generations, that blending of love, that blending of, of that continuum sounds like a familiar story. Wouldn't you say, Rena? I thought he was on the right show. He sure was, because we have some of the same ideals that he has. And all of us are out there searching for the right path to move forward on with our own lives and also to make a mark to better humanity and to see if we can make the world a little bit of a better place, as we've said on other shows. And the only way you can do that is by willing to communicate and participate candidly, but to be honest and true to yourself and to the people around you, and that it's not all about ourselves, but sharing ourselves with others. And those that are the big givers instead of the takers will find that that is a hell of a lot more rewarding. And you'll actually get more things in return by being a big giver than to be a big taker. What did you think about him suing his school? Well, I think that takes a lot of big kahootas to do that, but he was determined to try to right an injustice. And sometimes that's what it takes. And I don't know if I would do something like that. I can't really comment whether whether it's right or wrong, but sometimes you just have had enough. You want to make a difference with an institution that is, or he's trying to set them right. And the funny part is, is that he clearly got a victory for not only himself, but laid the groundwork for others. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Bye.